I am going to sit this morning, and since I figured Jesus sat while he taught, there's not a bad precedent for that, um, but it'll help me. So if you would turn in your Bibles, it's been some time since we've been in Genesis, but we are back to chapter 42, picking up at verse 25. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, This man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Oh Lord God, praise you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet, truly, a light to our path, truly. It is truth. It is the bread upon which we feed, for we feed and drink Christ, our Lord and Savior. Teach us, O Holy Spirit. Let us become more like Christ. Deliver us from sinful temptations. Give us strength in trial. Give us joy through our struggles. Let us fix our eyes upon Jesus and look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth shall grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And we pray in Jesus' most blessed and precious name, always, amen. Well, it's been a while, but 
Last time, we saw that because of the severity of the famine in Canaan, and because of Jacob's pleading with his sons to go to Egypt to buy bread or to buy grain, the ten brothers finally agreed to travel there to Egypt to buy the needed supplies. Remember that Egypt was the last place they wanted to go to because they had sent their brother there many, many years before. And so when they arrived in Egypt, well, their transaction was anything but straightforward. Because why? Because Joseph, as it turns out, was the ruler of Egypt. And while they didn't recognize their brother Joseph, Joseph knew immediately that these foreigners come to buy provision were his brothers, the very ones who brought all the evil upon him that he had known for the past two decades or so. And so Joseph was presented with nothing less than a tremendous opportunity to take revenge upon these evildoers. But instead, as one who had experienced God's grace and as one who had learned humility through suffering, Joseph determined to pursue unity and love and reconciliation. However, for the family to be, to, to be reconciled, to come together in unity, that would require those brothers to acknowledge the sin they had committed and for them to repent. And so in verse 24, Joseph took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Now the rest were allowed to go back to their homeland, go back to the land of Canaan, go back to their father and to their freedom. Well, this was actually a test, you see. Were they willing, these brothers who went back home, were they willing to sacrifice one brother to keep their freedom and to maintain their comfort? As Caiaphas would say years later, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Remember, this is exactly what they had done many years before to Joseph. They had got rid of the one man they hated, the one brother they hated, the one nuisance, the one troublemaker as they saw him, that they could be comfortable, that they could be free. Or would they finally feel the guilt of their sin? And would they finally acknowledge what they had done and become in truth humble and honest men as they had claimed? And so in verse 25, Joseph, Joseph gives order, orders to fill their bags with grain, which of course the servants did. But they must have thought, that their Lord had lost his mind completely when he said, and by the way, put their money back in their sacks as well, because Joseph had never given that command before to any other buyers. He took their money, gave them grain as in a normal business transaction. But the wise Joseph knew that when this was discovered, his brother's hearts would be very disturbed, which was exactly what was needed, and which was exactly what happened, as we read a few moments ago, when the one brother 
first opened his sack at the particular place where they were, and he discovered the money as well as the grain was in his sack, they were very much afraid and very troubled. And they said, what is this that God has done to us? It's interesting that for the first time in a long, long time, their minds turn to God. What has God done to us? What is God doing in our lives? The, the man knew that he had paid the appropriate amount of money for what he had purchased. And yet the money was back in his sack, meaning someone had put it there. He hadn't kept it. Someone else had put it there. In his mind, there could only be one reason for that. Someone was trying to frame him as a thief. Someone was trying to set him up for a big fall. Now, the ruler of Egypt, this Lord, he already had a sour attitude toward them. And surely, once the books were opened and audited, and it was discovered that he had not paid for his grain, he was in deep trouble. You see, beloved, the, the Holy Spirit was at work here. The Holy Spirit was against them, pressing against them in pursuit of their hearts. It was right for them to ask, what is this that God has done to us? Because God pursues His people who run away from Him, but He pursues them, beloved, to restore them, to bring them back, to bring them back into the fold. Think about long ago, Adam and Eve, and God came to the garden, probably on that Sabbath day, and called out, Adam, Adam, where are you? Think about David, King David. He sinned grievously with Bathsheba, committing adultery, even murdering, causing Uriah, her husband, to be killed. And yet God sent Nathan the prophet for what? To convict him of his sin, but to restore him. Peter, the apostle Peter, denied his own Lord, our Lord, three times before what? Little servant girls. And Jesus himself came to him on the beach to restore him. God seeks the lost. He pursues his children with the goal of restoration. Jesus is the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after that one sheep who has wandered, who has strayed. As a pastor of many years, I've heard many, many stories. I've heard stories recently, even, from some of you, of parents whose children have gone astray. There's the heartbreak, the loss, the, the desperation almost, the sense of failure. And yet I've heard stories also of restoration, how that after some months, maybe some years, maybe a long time, God brought that child back to himself. Jesus, the good shepherd, restored that one. Because you know what? He won't let his people go. He will not be denied the sheep that he pursues. He seeks and saves that which is lost. And yet, here's the truth. God 
not uncommonly puts those wandering sheep through difficult circumstances and trials to awaken their conscience and to make, to make them aware of the pain of their sin. Like the prodigal who left his father, wanting his father dead, asking for his inheritance. And he was gone and eventually got to the point where he envied what the pigs ate. And only then did he understand what he had lost. The love relationship, his father, and what he had lost through separation. You may have heard of Jack Miller, Jack and Rosemary Miller. Uh, Jack Miller was an OPC pastor and a PCA pastor. He planted a church in Philadelphia. He was a teacher of practical theology when I was at Westminster um, great man, author of many books. And Jack and Rosemarie, they, they were also missionaries. Uh, Jack and Rosemarie had a daughter, Barbara, who when she turned 18 years old, she said, Arrivederci to the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that goodbye in some language, I hope? Um, she threw aside everything she grew up Everything she was raised to know. And she turned her back on the Lord and started making terrible choices. And they tell, Jack tells the story in Come Back, Barbara. And as they watched these choices, they became sick at heart. Here's what Jack wrote. <clears throat> we felt as though Barbara was headed into an abyss. And there was nothing we could do to stop it. All we could do was shake our heads. We had feared the worst, and it was beginning to happen. It was like slipping into a bad dream in which you're watching someone about to skydive from an airplane. As the skydiver leans forward to jump, you notice he's not wearing a parachute. You try to shout a warning, but the cry freezes in your throat. You muster all your strength, but no sound comes. All you can do is watch the skydiver fall. You can, you can hear the pain that sense of helplessness and loss. But see, dear ones, our helplessness does not mean that God is helpless. It does not mean that God is lost because He loves our kids far more than we do. Jack wrote this, Today it is my conviction that no matter how heavy the blow inflicted by circumstances, each Negative experience is part of the Heavenly Father's perfect plan for each believer. He allows the hour of destruction for the purpose of building something better in its place. See, God's plan, and it was God's plan through His servant Joseph, was to bring these men to the end of themselves, meaning the end of their pride, the end of their arrogance, the end of their self-serving living through suffering that they might finally admit and confess their sin. And so they arrived home to their father. They were tired. Oh, they were frustrated. But of course, they had no choice to tell their father what had happened after all. One of the brothers, Simeon, was not with them. 
he was still in Egypt. And they had to let their father know the condition upon which they could go back and bring Simeon home, which was namely that they had to take Benjamin with them when they returned to Egypt. And they tell their story in verses 30 and 30, 30 through 34. But we discover there that they're still living in denial. They tell much of their story, but they're still not willing to admit what they had done. They're still not fully broken in their hearts. They still are not willing to humble themselves and tell their father, the person that really needed to know exactly what they had done. Oh, they mention it to themselves in verse 21, but they don't yet tell Jacob. They're still hiding their sin. They're still pretending they had no fault in this trouble when they knew that this distress had come upon them because of their own wicked actions. So why the continued silence? Why not confess their sins? Because it's hard to do what King David did and say plainly, I have sinned against the Lord. It's hard to repent of our particular sins and be honest about them and confess them as evil and confess them as sin against God and often against people. What is the easy way? Oh, the easy way goes back to Adam and Eve. Blame shifting. It's that woman God gave me. It's someone else's fault. My kids, my teacher, my parents, my whoever. It's someone else's fault. Or we whitewash it. We call it a mistake. We call it poor judgment. Or we excuse it. Come on. Everybody does that, you know. Can't be wrong if it what? Feels so right. We grew up with that song, some of us did. Or we justify it. You know, the end justifies the means. It's necessary for some noble purpose, some higher plan. Or we, de we redefine it, call it an alternative lifestyle. Or a woman's choice. Or, hey, it's just my personality. It's who I am. Or we delay our confession, hoping that, you know, eventually the person's going to forget about it. Or give up. Oh, here's maybe a good one. We start crying to generate pity, turn ourselves into the victim, right? Regardless of our MO, we are experts. Each one of us, every one of us is expert at getting out of confessing our sins. Why? What's the problem? What's the reason? Pride. Pride. I just can't admit that I did something wrong, and it was my fault alone. And yet you must. You must, because without repentance, there can be no forgiveness. There can be no reconciliation. There can be no peace and no life. Hell is full of bitter people with unforgiving hearts. So the screws get turned a little tighter. In verse 35, and apparently when the one brother discovered his money was in his sack, it didn't occur to the other brothers to check their sacks. Maybe the same thing would be true of them, but when they got home, they discovered indeed. Every one of them had his money back in his sack along with his purchase, and they became very afraid. I mean, Simeon was still in Egypt, and unless their father allowed Benjamin to return with them, Simeon would never be freed. 
But even if Jacob would let Benjamin go, which was highly unlikely, they might all face charges, almost certainly would. As soon as they stepped across the border into Egypt, they'd be arrested as thieves, almost certainly. God was tightening the screws. They were really going to jam. And Jacob reacted to this, perhaps predictably, with anger. Verse 36, you have taken away my kids. Joseph's no more. Simeon's no more. And you want Benjamin as well. And then he descends into self-pity. And he says, all this has come against me. All this is against me. I see this as a, a low point in Jacob's life. A low point because to say such a thing is to think like an atheist. Is to think as someone who knows not God. Is there not a God in heaven? Does not that God, is He not almighty? Does He not rule over things in earth? We read earlier from Romans 28, I mean Romans 8, verse 28 and following, one of my favorite cherished passages, because it reveals a principle, or it shows a principle revealed in, in the story of Joseph, that all things work together for good. And so, beloved, how can even one thing be against you if God works all things together for your good? How can one thing? be against you, much less all things. But don't we also descend into thinking like those who don't know God when we say these things are against us? I mean, here's Jacob with all of his years walking with the Lord, seeing the Lord's faithfulness time and time and time again, and yet still doubting, still saying the Lord is against me, and yet we do the same. We have to remember the Word of God. If God is for us, who can be against us? Jacob, isn't God for you? Then who is against you? What is against you? What has more power than Almighty God to defeat His purposes? Who is stronger than God? Who can prevail against God? No, in all these things, Gary read in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We should be able to see ourselves in Jacob because we often react as he did. Woe is me, we think. All these things are against me. And yet we know, because we know how the story goes. We know how wrong he was. We know that the very circumstances he thought were so against him were actually what? They were for him. They were for the good of his family that he would have not just nine or ten or eleven, but all twelve of his sons back together in loving unity. The church Again, united in humility and love. God was not against him. God had not forsaken him. God had not forgotten him. These very troublesome circumstances were for his good. And so we as God's people must not descend into self-pity, thinking like an atheist. Jairus was a synagogue ruler. He had a very sick daughter. 
And he went to find Jesus to ask him to heal his daughter, but Jesus got distracted along the way. And before Jesus got there, the daughter died. And some men came to tell Jairus, it's too late. Forget it. She's died. She's dead. I'm sorry. And Jesus said, don't be afraid. Just believe. Jacob, don't be afraid. Just believe. Christian, don't be afraid. Just believe because God is with you. He fights for you. And if God is with you, who can be against you? Reuben had a great idea. Dad, kill my sons. If I don't bring them back, yeah, right. Jacob's going to go with that. Kill my grandsons. Yeah, great idea. But notice something positive here. There's something positive here. Reuben is willing to lose something very precious to him. For whom? For Benjamin. What does that mean? It means Reuben, a son of Leah, was willing to incur a great loss for a son of Rachel. The Holy Spirit was changing hearts. And yet Reuben was, in fact, the one who tried to save Joseph. So there was still a lot of work to do, and including in Jacob's heart, because Jacob was still paralyzed by fear and unbelief. He wasn't fully trusting God. And his sons needed to come face to face with the one they had hated and despised and treated so wickedly. For the family could not be reunited until each one faced the darkness of his own evil heart, because only through faith and repentance can one find the freedom of forgiveness and love. But let's ask ourselves, what then motivates us to repent, to engage in that hard act of repentance for proud and arrogant people? Is it the law beating you up, thou shalt not? Is it guilt? Is it trying to get something from God, trying to manipulate God and saying, well, God, if, if I turn from this sin, maybe you'll give me this or that? No, that's not the motive. None of those are. What's the motive? The gospel. The gospel is the motive. Listen, the sons of Israel betrayed Joseph, the beloved son of Jacob, and yet God used that horrible crime for the salvation of Israel. Does that not sound familiar? Years later, the sons of Israel would cry out against the most beloved Son of God. And they would cry out, crucify Him, crucify Him. Let His blood be on the, blood, be on the heads of our children. And yet that was the very event that God foreordained for the salvation of Israel and indeed the world. For all who will call upon Him, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So why then, beloved, wouldn't you repent when God promises to forgive you? And when, when forgiveness, when being forgiven is true freedom and joy. And so the family, 
that was divided through the sins of jealousy and bitterness really can be reconciled. You see, because the ministry of Christ is the ministry of reconciliation and peace and love, I can repent because I know that the Almighty God, the judge of all the earth, He forgives sin. One man said this, Because my sin has been paid for by by Christ, I can confess it freely and not be crushed by it. I don't have to deny my sin or minimize it. And as Paul said, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Right? All this is from God, Paul said, who gives us the ministry of reconciliation. That is the ministry of the kingdom. That is the ministry of Christ. It's the ministry of bringing together, the ministry of unity, the ministry of reconciliation. So yes, proclaim the gospel, but live it by pursuing reconciliation wherever it's needed. The Bible says, be at peace with all people inasmuch as it depends on you. Sometimes it's beyond you. And in that case, entrust that person, entrust that relationship to the Most High God and wait upon God, but continue to be humble and broken and peaceful in your own heart. Because Christians can only clearly present the gospel of peace and reconciliation when we are displaying the reality of of reconciliation in our own relationships and with people that we know. The church of Jesus is one body witnessing of the God of redemption and reconciliation through unity and love. And so I leave you with the words of Jesus spoken to the crowd in that great sermon on the mount. He said, if you are offering your gift at the altar, in other words, if you are engaged in the act of worship and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Amen. Oh God, thank you for reconciling us, not by our works, not by our righteousness, but by the blood of another, by the actions of another, even Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. He offered his blood for joy that was set before him. He went to the cross He cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He endured the humiliation. Even more, he endured the suffering from our sins, that we could be reconciled, that we could be sons and daughters of the living God, that we could be forgiven, and that we could forgive others their debts as we have been forgiven. Thank you that the church is one, that we are a people of unity and love. Let each one of us be broken and humble and contrite, confessing our sins freely because we have a God who forgives sin. Thank you then for Jesus. Amen.